Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Welcome and bienvenidos on another episode of Publicly Challenged. This is your host, Clay Bowers, and I'm joined by our very esteemed guest, Donnie Dust, and obviously our other co-host, Luke Oswald. Uh, Donnie, you're an amazing dude. Please introduce yourself and tell us about uh, you and just get us going on this podcast. <laughs> right on. No worries. Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Donnie Dust, and I hail from uh, the great state of Colorado. And uh, this is pretty much where I've been living for probably about the past 10 12 years it was a bit yes yeah, about 10 12 years and um out in colorado i run a, a wilderness self-reliance school called paleo tracks and i teach classes all around you know colorado to my places in new mexico and the chihuahua desert um i've written a couple books i have a third book coming out called wild wisdom uh next year and uh recently um, maybe as a couple months ago, I started my own podcast called Rescue uh, and just highlighting unique rescue stories all around the world and uh, kind of giving praise and homage to what real heroes are, you know, the everyday citizen that's willing to sacrifice themselves to, uh, you know, ensure those around them are are safe and can ultimately get home to their loved ones. So that's uh, what I just like to call a real hero podcast. No capes, no jerseys no you know pop stars or movie stars everyday people willing to get it done so yeah that's about me <laughs> mm -hmm. um your podcast is really cool uh so before I, I i asked you to come on the show and then um i i was like 
not expecting you to say you could come on as soon as you did. And, I know. <laughs> and, then, I, and I was like, oh, crap, I got to do some research. And I started, uh, um, you know, I, I went and I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. And uh, right it's really on. awesome. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> I have not. I'm sorry. I didn't. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't do my homework. But so let's no. talk a little bit more about it. Um, <laughs> like, so we're talking just like everyday people, heroes, or are we talking like mostly soldiers, veteran type? Yeah, there's there's a whole mixture of of folks that uh, are featured on the podcast. We have everyone from search and rescue members, Canadian search and rescue. Uh, you know, oil workers, the standard, you know, train goer that takes the same trout or trout. <laughs> See where my head's at about fishing, <laughs> but it takes the same train every day to work. Um, moms, dads, it's really everybody and anybody that uh, kind of has these unique, um, you know, experiences where, you know, communities come together, people act uh, in these very heroic ways to ultimately save lives. And it's, you know, rock climbers, miners, you know, your average Joe, doctors, ambulance workers. So it's, it's, it's some of the, some of the stories are kind of well known as far as, let's say, the Westgate uh, terrorism attack in Kenya, uh, the Paddington train station that took place in the UK. I don't know if you guys, you're probably old enough to remember baby Jessica. We were probably all, you know, seven eight nine ten but the little girl that fell down the well she's now mm. like, you know, oh yeah in her, wow yeah <laughs> but, but it's it's you know we know the story of baby jessica but we don't know the story of the the individuals that are associated with that rescue and some of the the unique things that they kind of had to in, endure in those rescues and then kind of the second third order effects of those rescues dealing with kind of a post-traumatic stress um of dealing with saving an infant child there's some military ones um we're gonna have a couple episodes well one episode towards the end is uh having to deal with the international space station so we're going you know low to high so to speak so it's 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 pretty great and it's quite an honor to uh you know uh, share these stories and and kind of bring people on uh, a journey of you know uh, what a hero is you know no one wakes up and decides to be a hero sometimes it just kind of turns out that way so that's my uh my uh my privilege to kind of bring these stories into into the surface into the limelight if you will that's awesome now i right now i gotta listen for sure because <laughs> yeah. i mean who doesn't love stories like that too you know somewhere yeah. where you, especially like an average person or whatever i mean you know so a lot of times people have a higher level of training or or you've got just this regular guy who one day reacts and i think that's pretty cool that you know that that instinct that innate ability is still within people and and there's still protectors out there and we're not just blindly all of us blindly walking around and, and uh maybe even being sheep absolutely man it's 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 great to hear these stories and i think it's uh it's pretty amazing to kind of go on their path their journey you know there's um some that have to deal with you know miners being trapped in a mine and a mine is being you know completely just you know right it's just ravaged with water and it's filling up and it's just like a community comes together it's uh to get these miners out it's there's there's some pretty awesome stories check it out we have like episodes that drop pretty much every tuesday uh, it's a 20 part, uh, 20, 20 episode podcast. It's, uh, produced by Sony. And, um, I was kind of fortunate to get the, uh, the invite to, to read for it to you, cause you gotta kind of have to like audition in certain ways. And oh. so when I, when I went through that, like audition, you know, you're 
reading in front of people and I'm not like the best reader. (laughs) Some of the words too big. I'm like, God, what is that word? I remember that from like seventh or eighth grade, but uh, yeah, it it worked out. That's why I'm able to talk on this nice microphone because this is the one that I actually used to (laughs) record the podcast. But um, yeah, there's a whole team, uh, a whole bunch of producers and sound editors and uh, writers that are all involved with it. And uh, everyone just puts a lot of effort in it's, we always like, you know, we'll, we'll air an episode and then somebody specific that was mentioned in that episode, one of the key, you know, kind of characters reaches out and says, you know, hey, I know, you know, my buddy died in the pursuits of his search and rescue to, uh, you know, save some folks. But uh, we really feel like you guys did one hell of a job kind of paying homage to him. His family listened and it was just a great way to tell his story and how important, you know. Uh, you know, he was to us and how important he was to that rescue mission. So not all of them are, you know, happy endings, but uh, some of them are, are pretty impactful, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you recently got back from Africa. Um, Correct. What, yeah. What, what were you doing in <laughs> Africa? Yeah. So um, I got an invite uh, from an organization called Cotters and um, they were wondering if I'd head out to Africa and, um, you know, kind of do some filming with them. And in return, they would put me in contact with a couple uh, of the Maasai tribes that exist on the Kenyan Tanzanian border. And um, I could go out there and just live with them, you know, tend, tend their goats, put on a shuka, carry a spear and, you know, kind of become Maasai, if you will, you know, eating their food. Uh, kind of understanding their customs and their cultures and just spend time really immersed with them and living with them. And um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I got to participate in uh, something the Maasai call a meat camp. And it was kind of my, it might be my new favorite type of camping ever. But um, <laughs> essentially, you know, how I got there uh, or how I got into this village was, you know, I kind of employed some of my old tactics from when I was in the military as a counterintel guy and kind of uh, identifying the values in different communities and in the Maasai culture, cows, sheep, and goats are their their currency. Really, you are, you know, viewed wealthy based on the number of cattle and, and sheep and goats that you have. So, I purchased uh, six goats in the local market, relatively cheap. Goats are fairly <laughs> obtainable uh, <laughs> in, in Kenya, and then uh, I went to the village and, uh, you know, presented the. Uh, the the eldest man in the village, uh, my goats, and he was honored and humbled. And there's a big meet and greet. And then uh, the following day, we did a meat camp where um, of the six goats that I that I had provided to the village, two males, four females, we were going to uh, eat the two males. So we had to head out in the bush, track down the the males, carry them back into this kind of tree line where there was a spring, and uh, we commenced into butchering them, but how we actually dispatched the goats was something I'd never partaken in before because typically, you know, like we're all hunters and, uh, you know, fishermen and typically we put an arrow on the side of something, maybe some sort of round, or maybe, you know, if you're running a trap line, something to that extent, but, uh, how I killed this goat in conjunction with their culture and their traditions was through suffocation. So, I got this goat on the ground and put my knee on its throat and then my two big hands uh, right around its mouth and pretty much suffocated it to death. And there's there's a reason behind that. And the reason is simply that the Maasai uh, drink the blood of a lot Mm -hmm. of their animals. So after the goat had 
you know, completely past um, right along its neck. You just kind of remove the hide and make like a little bowl, if you will. And it's still connected to the animal, but it's like a little, it's like when you pull that hide off that first five, six inches, it's kind of got like a little pocket. Mm-hmm. And then you puncture that carotid artery, push on the side and all the blood fills up in that little bowl. And then we uh, drink the blood and completely, I mean, drain the blood out of it. And it's scooped up in cups and everyone's sharing it. But if you want to be like considered, you know, part of the the men's meat camp, you have to get down on your hands and knees and just drink the blood straight from the hide. And um, yeah, so I did that. And then we went through the process of uh, butchering uh, both, both goats. And it was unique because I consider myself pretty well-versed in uh, eating game meats. Like with my two sons, they haven't eaten a piece of meat out of a piece of plastic in years. I just, I just don't feed them that sort of, you know, stuff. So we went through and we butchered that goat. And uh, I will honestly say everything was consumed on that goat from the intestines to the gallbladder, heart, liver, lungs, all, all organs, the stomach, you know, some people will turn it into tripe or will do these various things with it. It was all just removed. The only thing that wasn't consumed by a majority of the men in the meat camp was that kind of undigested, uh, you know, grass from the stomach. However, though, there was this old Maasai guy. I don't know how old he was. He probably had been close to a hundred. He just kind of made his way out of the tree line and just started eating that grass. And, um, yeah, I mean, every bit of intestines was cut up and it was worked into, uh, what they would call like a barbecue where it was just roasted over the coals, the testicles, gallbladder, um, coagulated blood was all just eaten raw. And then there was soups made, there was <laughs> barbecue made. And then uh, of of those two goats, um, some meat needed to be provided to the women of the village, as well as the young boys and young kids in the village. But ironically, it's it's like the backstrap. So you separate the spine and you keep the that those you know backstrap pieces on there. And myself and the village chief, we walked to where the women were kind of waiting on the side of the tree line, present them with their cuts, and then the two hindquarters, the two back legs. Um, that's what the young kids kids eat. So they take that and go, you know, do their own thing. And then we went back to camp. And I think there's like there's like eight courses in the entire process from like the blood and raw components to then uh eating the liver. They roast the the, uh, the liver right over the coals, and then it goes into uh, kind of this. They don't they don't cut away like cuts of meat. They're not taking roasts and shanks and stuff. It's literally just removing the meat from the bone. They stick it on a stick and then just cut little pieces off of it and skewer it. Uh, throw it in various soups and. Um, the last portion is they they collect a lot of the fat and they start to kind of render it down and then they start to throw little pieces of meat, uh, the you know large intestines, small intestines, um, every every piece of gristle that you could come up with is tossed into that little, I you know like crackling sort of stuff and then uh, the remainder of the uncoagulated blood is poured over the top as like this sauce and we just (laughs) we just sat there before you know it like i got this huge gut i'm falling to sleep underneath this acacia tree there's just like this one they call you know so a white person in 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 swahili swahili or in the maasai is called a mazungo and uh eventually i got a different name i can kind of go into that but 
there's this one Mazungo and a bunch of, you know, Maasai guys laying with big fat bellies up underneath the tree telling stories and just, you know, BSing. But it was like, this is how we need to camp. Like, everyone just brings a goat or <laughs> something out in the bush and you just, yeah, just just get into it. So it was it was pretty awesome and it was uh, quite quite a privilege to spend some time with them. And, you know, I kind of told them, I said, hey, whatever you guys need me to do uh i'm i'm willing to do it so if you need me to stand up at night and, and watch the cattle because it's uh, they sleep in what's called a boma it's this big circle of acacia uh, branches that are just full of these like two three inch thorns so there's an exterior boma and then there's one on the inside where they actually put their livestock and since they're pastoralists it's it's kind of their priorities to keep those so i just wanted to be able to pull my weight so you know, there was, uh, you know, one night where there's hyenas right outside the Boma and, you know, the men kind of wake up and go there and, you know, stand guard with their. Sp- sort of culture to uh, kind of a, a traditional hunter gatherer culture with the Kamba tribe. And I mm-hmm. was able to sp- spend time with this gentleman known as Kinyeka. And um, he was, he's somewhere, he doesn't know his exact age. He's between 70 and 85, but um, <laughs> they, they they don't really keep track. But he said he's been, you know, hunting with a bow for, you know, since he was a really young boy and he was put in jail for poaching and then released from jail to help with anti-poaching. But the the, the poaching he was doing was because the government kind of had a lockdown on, on hunting and uh, he was still taking, you know, zebra and gazelle and, you know, dick dicks for his family and his tribe to eat. And eventually they kind of caught up with him. But we spent time making bows, searching for honey and trees, foraging mushrooms. And I'm pretty particular when it comes to mushrooms. And he's like, no, this is good. You you can eat it. He's like, actually, when you eat it, it will make you less hungry. I'm like, well, I got to try this. So, <laughs> you know, and he's like, ah, if it grows on elephant poop, it's good. I'm like, what? Are, okay. I, I'm trusting <laughs> you. Dude. I totally trust you. And I had, you know, no, no ill effects, but, um, so we spent a lot of time with him and then, uh, you know, it was just, it was a pretty awesome experience just, to to kind of go there and live within those two kind of cultures and get, get a deeper understanding for, you know, who they are and uh, how they go about living. And cause I think for me, who is, you know, teaches a lot of different skills, I still like to be the student quite a bit. And when I get the opportunity to learn from people, you know, all around the world, different cultures, different backgrounds, I, I definitely jump in that opportunity. So I was able to learn quite a bit and, you know, just how they made their bows and how they built, you know, lion traps and gazelle traps and all these variety of, um, you know, snares, if you will. And uh, it was it was pretty amazing. I enjoyed it. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so that, those pic- those pictures I saw then of you making a bow with a gentleman in Africa. I'm assuming yeah. that's it. That's who you were just talking about. Yeah, that's 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 Kinyeka. Yeah, he's he's also known as Moses because like. He, uh, there's a rhino that was charging him and this woman and he just kind of stood his ground and the, the rhino just kind of split to the side and she's like, I will call you Moses forever. And he's like, okay. mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, but that's in, in those photos, that's Kenyaka. He's just, he's this little gummy bear of a man. That's just, he just knows everything. And you know, you're, you're, he's like, let's, you know, track some animals. We're like tracking baboons and dick dicks and gazelles and zebras all over. And he's. It was just 
interesting to to track with him and how they go about uh well how he specifically goes about hunting and it just kind of gave me a little bit more ground truth into my own hunting and just kind of perspectives as far as you know it's it's a very simple form of hunting what i mean by is all most of, if not all of their hunting is is they're shooting bows with poisoned uh tipped arrows and the idea and it's like i i i built bows with him and then i built a bow kind of our traditional bow out of this um like just a traditional stick bow it wound up being like you know 30 35 pounds on the draw out of this wood called croaton and it was completely foreign wood, but after building some of the combo style bows, I'm like, I could probably shape one out pretty easy. But when I was getting him to shoot it, they don't they don't draw all the way back and find that that cheek weld, that 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 little money spot. It's like a four-inch draw and then let loose an arrow, and it just takes off like a rocket with a little metal tip, or before they used to use bone or hardwood covered in poison. And it was just, it was kind of a new style of bow shooting for me. And as I introduced kind of my style, he's like, oh, I don't like it. Cause it's just, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's you know, a quick little snapshot. Like exactly. Yeah. That's really, that's exactly what it is. And for, for him, it's like, he puts the arrow in an animal and then it's all about, you know, letting the animal run and then doing that like hard ground track on it, because it's not even like there's, a large blood trail involved because this is like a real tiny little um kind of like four shaft into an arrow just to introduce the poison so it's really about tracking that specific animal so imagine like 20 or 30 gazelle in this mm. little area surrounded by acacia you come up and you pop one of them and then 30 of them take off he has the ability to find the track of the one that he shot and then follow it over you know great distance until it's actually died so like as we're you know and again so it's it's illegal to hunt in kenya but as we're simulating like you know we we sneak up on some gazelle he picks one he claps his hand they all take off running and then he's able to pick up exactly where that track is and how it's moving and you know he's looking for like you know we, we always there's there's a lot of different terms i guess um when you're tracking but they, a lot of people call it spore so ground spore, mid-level spore, and then like upper spore, meaning something above your head, you know, like a big old bull elk is moved through the brush and he's taken off, you know, lower limbs on like a pine or something. So he's just able to identify like this little fold in the dirt. That's just, you know, if you're not looking for it, you'd walk right past it, but he just has this crazy ability to track it. Those were some really awesome opportunities uh, to learn. And I mean, just, simple things like him being able to walk and tell if an animal is pregnant uh how pregnant it is if it's a male if it's a female and like like just the things that we were going over i was like my mind is blown <laughs> it just you know i i feel like it's just going to make me you know a better hunter in, in in different forms and uh yeah it was a pretty amazing experience across the board it's insane so, some oh sorry but it's, I was just going to, yeah, I was just going to say the illegal thing though, is it, it's illegal at completely. Yeah. Yeah. So Kenya, um, has reformed all of its hunting laws in the past, you know, 60, 70 years where it is illegal to hunt in Kenya, but you can jump across the border in Tanzania and hunt. Um, it's just, and that's, they're actually running into significant problems with it because, you know, 
the the people that are there there's there's no value on the wildlife unless you can present a value to them in some sort of monetary means so they're trying to you know if if the maasai goes out and uh, they're tending their cattle, their sheep, and a lion comes up and attacks one of their sheep. They have every right to kill it. They have every right to defend their their herd against that lion, but they can't do anything with that lion or hyena or leopard after. They just leave it right there. And so there's just this weird kind of uh, kind of going back and forth between what they're you know legally allowed to do, what they're culturally allowed to do. And there's a lot of great efforts in the conservation world that are trying to build these larger aspects of conservancies to allow the people of those areas to maintain their way of life, but more importantly, live with the actual, um, you know, zebra and elephants and leopards and, and, and buffalo that are out there. So it's it's kind of a, an ongoing battle, but uh, there's a lot of great efforts that are that are being put forward so people can kind of maintain their culture and their, their, their past and stuff. And, you know, we don't really think about it a lot here here in the States, but once you go there and I'm like, you know, it's very easy to put in for tags somewhere, multiple states throughout the entire year, fill your freezer, but it's kind of changed in certain areas in, uh, in Africa. So, you wow. know, for a guy... Yeah, for a guy like Kenyaka, who's spent his entire life eating bushmeat, because everything is called bushmeat, whether it's a guinea fowl, a zebra, <laughs> or one of like the one to 200 elephants he's killed in his life, it's all called bushmeat. So for him, that's how he just grew up years and years in eating. So now his only joy is, you know, eating goats and sheep. And I'm like, God, I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine if I was in a place and they're like, all hunting is now banned. I'd be like, well, I'm moving. See you later. Don't move to Washington, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. kidding. But or California, but they're trying. They they really are trying. But it's crazy to see how intuitive people are, and not only people just like grew up with that, but that that is something that had to have been like you know generation after generation after generation passed down, and he still inherited those traits and and the ability to do that, and yeah. and is successful at it. I mean, just like you know, uh, like Polynesians following certain birds and seeing a bird in the sky and us, we just look at it and we're like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, Oh, whatever. And don't think, Hey, yeah. that's 60 miles out. So now I know I'm close to land or what, you know, or whatever yeah. it may be like, that's just insane to me to be able to do that and pick up on like the little things that you were saying. It's neat to receive that knowledge from somebody because for yeah. us, all that culture, that that stuff is lost. Yeah, it, it really is. I think like, one of the coolest things when we were looking for honey was he wasn't necessarily looking for the beehive or anything. He was looking for the bird that likes to mm. go to where the beehive is. So he's like, if yeah. we can find the bird, we just got to follow the bird and that will bring us to the honey. And we'll just take a little bit of honey just to kind of keep us going. I'm like, I'm like, whatever you want me to do, I will follow you to the <laughs> ends of the earth. My dude, like you are my favorite human being right now. So, um, we, we couldn't identify the birds, but like the cool part was even with that, we, we couldn't see the birds. We just, and he was trying to call them. They just weren't in the area. Then he had like a follow-up step after that is like, well, if we look at these specific trees that have like leaves that are dying along a branch, that can be indicative that there's a high or a, a hive on the inside. And then if we do see that, we look for this one particular little hole and there'll be honey in there. So we actually found one, but it was like an old one. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this guy, this guy's like, <laughs> he's amazing. You know? So he's doing his thing and 
we you know we kind of came up dry because it was an old an old hive but i was like my god man that's all. I'm like what's the next step and he's like next step uh we just go eat some you know because we were standing <laughs> under the tree he's like we just go eat some fruit so i was like all right that's cool with me <laughs> but it was uh yeah it was it was an amazing experience it felt pretty fortunate um you know, I hope to return, uh, you know, back to Kenya and kind of go see some of the folks that uh, I came across there in the in the, in the village, along with Kenyaka and um, explore some other areas of Tanzania specifically, because that's where the old divide gorges, you know, where some of the oldest stone tools have ever been napped and found. So um, that's kind of, uh, you know, one day in the future. But so I got one question circling back yeah. to the meat camp. And so after the kill, after the suffocation and doing what out of all the parts that you have never eaten before, or, or at least not in that style, what was your favorite one and kind of why? Well, I mean, I've, I've eaten most of the organ meats, but that was like a first time for intestines. I mean, sometimes people will do like casings out of them, like sausage casings, (laughs) but these, these weren't like cleaned. There's no like. They, yeah, they squeeze the poo out of them. And like usually, you know, the intestines <laughs> I've used for like bowstrings and stuff, I split them open, scrape out that inner membrane. There was none of that. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they just kind of squeeze the poo out. I'm like, are we going to run some water? Th-? No, okay. I trust, <laughs> you guys. I trust you guys entirely. And then it was just cut up into little pieces and thrown in some of that fat and covered in the uncoagulated blood so i mean that was my first time eating intestine and i can't say uh it was bad but it looked like i'm just gonna call it like bush calamari because that's Uh it was just these little tiny circles and i'm like oh it's calamari i know there's no squid around here but calamari in my brain (laughs) Um, it was it was good and it was even it was cool because like they even took the hide off and you know um i was curious how they were going to go about you know, processing the hide and drying and everything. And they just kind of did like, uh, I, I kind of call it like an, an early Native American sort of version where they actually just stake it to the ground and they just let that sun hit it and they kind of did a light scraping and then eventually it turns into rawhide. But one of the things I found that was interesting was out of all their sheep and the sheep that produce wool, they don't do any wool processing. And I was trying to like, you know, why don't you? And they're like, oh, it's not the best quality. I'm like, yeah, but you can still have poor quality wool. And you know, you can spin it into different cordages and, and, and threads and, you know, uh, wash it and clean it and maybe get, you know, uh, a couple different things out of it. They're like, no, we just don't do it. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not here to change your mind. I was just kind of like curious why I see some of these sheep with, I thought what I would deem as a nice little coat of wool and they did nothing with it. And the strange part that I experienced was actually on the inner workings of the Boma, they have quite a few chickens. And I was like, Oh, you guys eat chicken. They're like, no, I'm like, so what's with the chickens? <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out. They're like, well, the chickens essentially eat the insects and bugs off the goat and the sheep. And, you know, cause there's being that it's a pastoral sort of, you know, culture, there's just, you know, animal feces all over the place. It just kind of goes. And like these chickens are basically the bug cleaners. They just eat all the insects from the entire camp and anything that's hanging around the, the, the inner Boma where the livestock kind of stays at night. So they're kind of like the cleanup crew, if you want. I was like, all right, I, I get, you sure you don't eat any of these chickens? Like, no. I was like, all right, goat meat. And they'll eat like the occasional, like full cattle. But I think it's for like very specific, like ceremonies or something to that extent. But it was, it was, uh, 
it was awesome. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I ate a lot of goat and I, and I had had goat before plenty of times before, but how they prepared it and how they went about doing it was just kind of all new. So I'm kind of curious next time I get a goat, I'm going to be like, all right, I've got a new plan for this goat. <laughs> Whoever's with me is going to be like, oh, shit, here we go. He's we're going to be drinking blood and eating intestines and eating raw goat balls while they give those to the kids and the gallbladder and stuff like that. And I mean, I, I saw one man who was so into the blood that, you know, sometimes you're cleaning game and you get like at that little pool of blood that kind of collects on the inside of the chest cavity. Mm -hmm. He's just in there with his hand, like slurping it up. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> this guy is savage. <laughs> it was total savage. But when I look at him, I mean, I don't know how old he is. We'll just say maybe like 30 to 40, but he's probably been doing that his entire life. And like, there's, it's just completely normal for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I guess mm -hmm. when an outsider kind of goes there, and I wasn't judging anything in a negative, you know, negative aspect, but I was like, holy cow. I mean, nothing goes to waste. Like literally nothing goes to waste. And it was cool to kind of be part of that process and just eat goat meat all day. And they kind of do this, this thing where they don't actually cut the meat. So they, they pass a piece of meat around or you're given like a hunk of meat and then you put the meat in your mouth and then you, you take this big blade, it looks like a machete called an oleum, and they pull it out with their teeth and they just cut it off like this and then hand a piece over. And it's like, so I'm trying to, and I've never eaten meat like that. So think of like a 14 inch, like machete razor sharp. And I'm putting a piece of meat in my mouth and then trying to look and cut at the same time, not to cut my nose or my lips <laughs> off. And, so, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to figure out this process. And then I saw a couple of them like, they start the cut in the meat, then put it in the mouth. I'm like, you guys got to like educate me on some of this. I'm going to come, come home missing a nose and half of a lip. But it was just, it was just, I mean, I, for me, like all of those sort of things are just, they're, they're very fun to interact with and watch more importantly, experiment with it and then try and kind of see, all right, how, what, what can I apply in my own, you know, uh, pursuits in the outdoors or what can I use in my own hunting, you know, exploration and like a real, interesting concept was when i was tracking with kenyeka and he was like you know do you can you tell the difference between you know a, a pregnant uh, animal and you know a non-pregnant one do you guys know how i'm curious if you if if this is kind of a common concept here in the states but can you guys tell the difference between a pregnant uh, animal and a non-pregnant animal whether it's male or female you mean tracks yeah the tracks well <laughs> no. for, 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 for i don't know about pregnant for me here, uh, I can definitely tell the difference between like a buck and a doe. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's say you got a bunch of does and which ones are pregnant and which ones are. No. Yeah. No, no. I'm, this sounds really, you're going to, you're going to be like, well, this makes total sense. But it, as he was saying, as in, once an animal gets pregnant, the tracks will line up in kind of certain ways. And as the animal grows inside, the pelvis will start to open up and widen and the tracks will actually widen up in its gate. And you can start to tell the difference between uh, you're uh, exactly like, Oh no, <laughs> shit, that makes total Light sense. Bulb like, moment right yeah, there. Exactly. I totally get it's, it. Yeah. It makes, it makes total sense. So we're tracking zebra and he's like, this one is pregnant. This one isn't. And I'm like, well, first you have to stop and explain this. And he's like, look at the ones that are pregnant. The, they're almost kind of in line, just, you know, almost, you know, not exactly in line, but slightly offset. And Almost perfectly in line, though, yeah. for most animals. Yeah. 
Ex exactly. And then we looked at the the track that was pregnant and there was like at least a three inch gap between hoof to hoof. And I was like, holy cow, like, <laughs> holy cow, out of all of my times in the bush and like looking at tracks, the, the, the space in between the hooves and that, and that overall gate, I'm like, that makes total sense. And he goes, some male animals, they'll poo when they walk, female animals will stop and poo. So he's like, this is a male, this is a female. And I'm like, you know what? I, I mean, I see moose poop and elk poop all the time. I've never really stopped and like watched an animal poo. Like if it's a big bull, is he walking and pooing? I'm like, that's a huge, huge, you know, you know, tip right there. I'm like, I got to start paying attention to more animals pooing in the bush so <laughs> I can collect, you know, some data on these guys. But yeah. yeah, man, it was just, it was just awesome across the board. Really but that's was. what bucks do. They, they, it's not, not in the same, like it's actually spread out as they walk when yeah. they go and a doe will make it in a small little pile as they're small little pile. Yeah. I've noticed that because you you can always find the doe bedding if you find the little piles rather little than piles. scattered about. Right on, man. Yeah, it's wow. there's just so much. That's why I just like to learn from folks. It's, That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's great to be the instructor and the teacher, but it's even cooler to be the the student from you know a guy that we're not really sure of his age, and he's killed more elephants than you could possibly imagine with poison you know, darts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, poison <laughs> darts, and his as he was telling me, he's like, I've killed many elephants for food, and some of them, you know for villages he goes but my favorite thing to do is when the elephant is down and i've removed the guts he goes i go inside and i bathe i bathe inside the the cavity i'm like you do what and he's like yeah, <laughs> I, I wash myself with all of like the the blood and the membrane and the kind of the mucus that's on the inside and he goes i wash myself in there and it's like keeps me cleansed and he goes uh, he goes, it also helps if you're trying to hunt predators because then you smell like a dead elephant. Like you, you are insane, but I, re but I respect you immensely. You know, yeah. thank you, man. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do that on a bear kill, but you know, happens, you know, there's idiots around here getting attacked by bucks for pouring dough urine and stuff all over them, right? Estrus yeah. and stuff. And then this dude's straight up rolling around like Luke Skywalker inside. Yeah, yeah. Just like it's a tauntaun and it's whatever. <laughs> Or that indoor or what i can't remember what planet that yeah. was but yeah he's <laughs> yeah man I, it, it was just an awesome experience to to go out there i hope to maybe in the upcoming year maybe you know the following year bring some folks out there on some bushwalks with kenyaka and maybe kind of do some of the same things that i got to experience and kind of go from there dude i'd totally do that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> right on man Right on. So, so Donnie, yeah. Donnie, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, though, you mentioned that um, there's a site nearby. It's one of the earliest places for flint napping, right? Stone tools. Yeah. Um, do do any of the African people that you were with, do they know any flint napping? And if not, what is the disconnect there? Um, is it just only because of the poisoning? Yeah. So the the great, great question. The the place is known as the Old Divide Gorge and like it's it's along the Rift Valley. And that is ultimately where, you know, the leak, uh, Dr. Leakey discovered Lucy, um, that early version of, you know, Australopithecus, Homo habilis, all these various early versions of humans. And that's where they kind of discovered um, the Oldowan stool, uh, stool, the Oldowan stone tool culture. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of consistent of like stone choppers, hammer stones, blades, scrapers, just a very kind of simple kind of stone tool uh, kit, but it was very effective uh, in that time. So that was 
there. That is actually in Tanzania, but I was like 80 miles south of it. So I was really foaming at the mouth to go there and kind of experience <laughs> it. But I'm like, that'll be uh, another trip. Now, what makes um, the Maasai a very unique kind of people is that they actually kind of uh, found their way into Kenya about six, 700 years ago. They're actually in the kind of north uh, western portions of Africa and then eventually kind of migrated into that area. And you know, they're kind of well known for their uh, their songs, how they jump up and down, their warrior status, you know, coloring their hair red with uh, red ochre and um, their garments, which are known as uh, shukas. And that's that red plaid kind of uh, garment. And when they first kind of started making their way into Kenya, they came across some Indian traders. And prior to that, they were wearing, you know, and keep in mind, this is still when they were uh, in that pastoralist, you know, very animal husbandry sort of thing. And um, they came across some some traders from India that they traded kind of linens with and cloth with. They didn't like the white, so they dyed it red. And that was kind of their color. Fast forward maybe a hundred years and they came into contact with some Scottish traders. <laughs> and they really liked the uh, the plaid, the tartan that a lot of Scottish guys had. <laughs> and they kind of adopted that into their their culture. So a lot of the shukas you see these guys wearing are um, kind of Scottish in origin. So even though the Maasai kind of migrated there, stone tools really isn't in their their purview. So when I was kind of demonstrating some of the flint napping, um, it was it was fascinating to them. But really, where they used stone tools uh, was in the form of obsidian. And it was really for just cutting hair. They'd find little flakes on the ground, realized how sharp it was, and they were able to kind of shave their heads. I mean, they're not very hairy at all compared to, they were just fascinated with my beard and my long hair, <laughs> and my hairy arms. You know, you got like a, I would assume a 65 year old man kind of petting my face and calling me Mzungo, <laughs> and, um, which is, you know, which is totally fine. But that was kind of like the most stone tool they used were just small kind of found pieces of obsidian um, in that overall Kenyan area, really for for cutting hair and doing stuff. But like when you go to like the Kamba tribe, which can go into the Kamba, the Wukamba, the Awakamba, all these different kind of tribal areas, they did have um, early uses of stone, but there's there's been a lot of migration, you know, through colonization and, and through their own migrations. Many African folks have kind of moved from one place to another. And we have some traditional tribes like the San and the Hadza. And um, they're they're kind of in their kind of original areas, but there is still a migrational kind of pattern or immigration, or I don't know what the technical term would be, where they move from one spot to another and kind of resettled. But um, you know, there's there's when when you think of the Maasai, I don't want to call them relatively new, but they're not. Um, you know, 10,000 years old and they're coming from one area. So the Maasai we know today is, like I said, about six or 700 years old. And eventually they made their way into Kenya. And at that time, steel was, you know, introduced to them where they have their large spears, uh, one with a large blade on the, on the top and kind of like a pokey um, kind of like single pointed blade on the bottom that they've used for hunting lions. And it's kind of interesting as I was learning, um, that lions and leopards and hyenas are very aware of anyone that's wearing red because they associate that color of red with something that will fight back and actually try to kill them. Hmm. So 
it's recommended like you put on a shuka and i wore a shuka when i was out there whether i was on guard duty or in the meat camp um you just wear a shuka and that is kind of like a warning that you know if you're a lion if you you can try and take something but we're, we're gonna fight back we're not just gonna you know run and hide like we're coming at you with spears and there's many men there that have killed lions and that's kind of part of that process to become like a Maasai warriors, the extension of the earlobes, a splitting of the front teeth, um, a circumcision, killing a lion. Um, you kind of get these, you know, these certain cultural uh, requirements, but those still exist today where, like I said, if a lion's coming after one of their cattle, they have every right to kill it. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty unique as far as how the Maasai kind of got there and kind of their story. Because they did exist prior to that, but the most recognizable form of the Maasai is, you know, when they jump and they sing and mm -hmm. um, we did lots of jumping, they'll point to a leaf on a tree and then you got to try and hit it with your head. You get three jumps and then we did some <laughs> jump circles and stuff like that. And me being six foot two, I kind of won every competition, <laughs> which was great, but uh, they could, they've got some, they've got some hops on them for sure. <laughs> Um, that, that's amazing. Um, I, I assumed that the Maasai would be taller. So you're saying that they're actually, uh, you were taller. Well, I mean, there's, there's some tall ones. I think the, the group that, you know, I was kind of with, I felt like I was the tallest, but yes, there's, there's some definitely some very tall Maasai guys. Uh, I mean, I came across a handful, but you know, just like anything, you always pick your battles. So I'm like, oh, I'll jump against you, you, and you. And they're like, okay, and they're all they're all like five foot eight. I'm like, I got this <laughs> you know, yeah. But it was it was great after, you know, because they they usually start their fires with like a hand drill. And oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So like they were completely blown away that this Mazungo knew how to do a hand drill and that I could throw a spear and I could. I could do all these things. I could put, take apart an animal and like, they don't have a lot of contact with, you know, uh, with, you know, white people all that often. But so eventually they gave me the name of Doroba, which was like a Bushman, like just a Maasai Bushman that kind of can do all these things. He's good at foraging. He's good at plan ID and, you know, doing a hand drill. So when I cranked out a hand drill, they were like, what in the world? Who is this guy? And, and I was trying to explain to them, look, I, I've been doing it for a little while, like as long as you, but the coolest part was like Maasai don't do like an individual hand drill. They like to do it as a group. So no one person mm -hmm. is like, I made the fire. It's my fire. It's like a group thing. And I'm like, oh, that's a good takeaway, man. You know what I mean? Like if there's four people watching one person do a hand drill, they all want to get involved because it's kind of like really close community. And um, it was awesome, man. Yeah. Well, also, geez, man, when you do a hand drill fire, I mean, I, I know that. So you have a lot of experience. I one time did. I used to do hand drill fire and I could do it in like 30 seconds. Yeah. But um, when you're learning that, Oh my God. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never did one in 30 seconds and I kind of gave yeah. up. I mean, I suppose yeah. if I had to, you know, yeah, you you know I could do it, but like yeah. I've got, I mean, it takes time. I've got some horsetail or whatever growing in my yard. That seems to be pretty good for that. If you try that out, but like, <laughs> uh, 
yeah, man, I got a pick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, might as well. Keep, and a fire steal. You know? Exactly. <laughs> keep it simple, you know. If it's not broke, you know, go for it. I think my my biggest, like, kind of fascination with doing the hand drill out there was I didn't know a lot of the woods. And I, and I kind of teach this in my classes. I'm like, you don't have to know the name of every plant. But if you know the properties of your ideal plants, you can kind of crosswalk that from one to the other. So if you want a kind of soft wood for a hearth board and a harder spindle, well, you could pick up four or five things, shape them in what you need and and start spinning and probably know pretty quick if it's going to work or if it's not going to work. And does the name of it really matter? No, but the properties are probably the most important thing. It's the same thing for, you know, smoking meats or building uh, atlatl darts or making a bow or doing a, a friction fire. Just know the properties of things and you can get a lot farther than trying to memorize every single plant. It's good to know plants, but mm-hmm. if you're in a new place like that, I'm like... I know what a handful of these are, but I know what uh, what works well for a hand drill friction farm. I'm just going to go find those pieces of wood and make it happen. So, yeah, that's super cool, man. Yeah, man, it was a good time. <laughs> so, a couple Luke, of things. Yeah, what? Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, okay. So yeah. you were talking about how you had all these these. This was a while back, but the sheep with the like the nice coat of wool on them and they didn't do anything with the wool or anything like so they yeah. don't make their shukas then or or do they like just purchase fabric or trade for it or what yeah there, there's there's a lot of trading like i had the the opportunity to go into like a local market and there's people there trading different things um and traditionally they would dye their kind of linens and traditionally before that they would just use like goat and sheep hides as their their clothing but as they've you know kind of moved in not not into like a modern world but as they've had this textile they kind of um they trade for them and they buy they buy them this that and the other but you won't see anyone you know walking around like a dyed white linen from ochre or anything to that extent but you would think if it's like a a shuka it's plaid it's got that scottish tartan on there you know you can you can make one (laughs) you know you know what do they call it a drop spindle and you just start spinning away but you know they kind of they keep it simple man they keep it very very simple and you know they have their their processes and you know you can see like a six seven year old kid tending to like even younger kids because they break them into age groups nobody that's why it's kind of hard to identify birthdays and like how old exactly somebody is. So they have these age groups and it's all tiered. So if like you're in an age group, that's the lowest one. Let's say that's like, uh, you know, newborn to like eight. And then maybe the next age group is another eight years on top of that. So on and so forth. But if you're in an age group and you have people below you in age groups, you can tell them what to do. You can kind of direct them around, but you can never direct anybody around that's in an age group above you so it's just kind of like this you know uh, it's it's an interesting structure but you know we'd wake up in the morning we'd sit outside of a house the women would bring us you know uh you know hot chai with goat milk we wouldn't really there's no real like eating of breakfasts and then you know the sheep and the the cattle and the goats would be let out and then we'd tend to those and then you know when night would fall they'd have like one little like battery operated radio and they'd put on some of their favorite songs and dance around a fire and kind of pop their shoulders. And it was, <laughs> it was, it was a pretty awesome experience. And, you know, as I'm standing there, I can't dance as anything, but I'm like, I can definitely jump up and down and kind of move myself to the rhythm and they got a kick out of it, you know? And once people hear there's, you know, a, 
uh, a Mazungo there, like people start coming from other villages to like witness this weird <laughs> thing that's, you know, in the middle of Kenya. But um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. No, Can I just cool. ask you real quick, what, what's with the, you said the comment about the split front teeth. I can't, I can't get let go of that. <laughs> yeah. So like, so imagine where your bottom front teeth are. They actually spread them open and it's like a sign of beauty and it's like a sign of like um, reaching your your age groups um, like maturity level. Like once mm-hmm. that happens, you're considered like an adult. So like there's like the male circumcision, which happens later on in life once they their age groups gets to a, a certain era. Um, and then, you know, people will put lobes in their ears and extend them out. Mm-hmm. Well, they do something similar, but they actually cut out the the earlobe and then start to pull it out so you'll get these guys with these really big loops and they'll actually take them and fold them over the top so between (laughs) circumcision their their um their front teeth kind of just being separated if you will and then uh the other thing they do is instead of tattoos they actually burn scars onto their Mm -hmm. arms and they'll take a little piece of fabric and get it smoldering and then like just dash into their arms, you know, and they all kind of just like how we have tattoos. They have them kind of underneath their shukas, underneath, you know, along their arms or along their legs. They've got them kind of all over the place and they all kind of mean a little story or, you know, something to that. And then like the beadwork, the females do a lot of uh, beadwork, like making bracelets and just these beautiful ornamentations of beads. And, you know, you can look at a Maasai guy and you can kind of see on his wrist based on the number of a beaded bracelets he has that can be indicative of how many wives he has and if you have two or three wives each wife has to have her own home and you have to spend kind of equal time with them i'm like oh my god man that's it's a lot of work you know what i mean but <laughs> but um yeah there's just so many little things that you can kind of pick up and learn and experience and and kind mm-hmm. of find out like what does this mean what is that for what is this and you know i'm i'm sleeping in this hut made by a woman because all the women make the huts and then the men bring the the main support beam into the hut and kind of they build around it but like the woman will sleep on one side the man will sleep on the other side and then there's like a little room to the side where they put like some of their livestock some of the young uh sheep and goats and and whatnot so i mean it is 100 like a pastoral culture where they really hold those animals sacred and you know there's a small little uh, fire pit on the inside, which the one thing that kind of blew my mind is, you know, we, we've built shelters have been in hot tents, having a good draft in a shelter is very, very, very important, but there's no, there's no chimney. The smoke just fills the shelter and kind of hangs in that, that upper level. And for me, who's tall has a hard enough time fitting in one of those. My eyes are just being <laughs> just destroyed by the smoke so you're trying to like get below it i'm trying to you know crouch down (laughs) but it was just you know that's kind of one of those things in a lot of these traditional cultures is they don't have the best ventilations for their for their fires and everything so there's kind of been this effort to like put a hole in the roof and then cap it to give them a good clean source of ventilation because they have a lot of respiratory problems because Mm -hmm. i mean they cook and boil and do everything over that fire but um yeah, man, it's just, there's, there's so much stuff that could, you know, they're starting to grow corn. They're trying to, to find like another uh, thing, but even the corn that I saw there, they were feeding the chickens. I'm like, 
you're gonna eat it they, and they do they make they make something called ogali which is this like cornmeal paste and that's what they'll eat with goat but that's pretty much you know their 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 main staples next to blood uh milk and then uh meat that's i mean which isn't a bad little thing i mean <laughs> it's a good meal. and the random meals, yeah. elephant dung mushrooms and whatnot right? yeah yeah oh yeah 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 for sure but wow yeah it's quite the journey quite the adventure so donnie i'm sure you've told this story before but um how did you get interested in all this stuff you know i've, I've yeah. been follow, following you for many years but i don't think i've ever heard your origin story <laughs> yeah right on well i mean i think my origin story is probably like 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 most of you guys as well you know you just kind of grew up in the outdoors uh you love hunting you love fishing you love just being outside and um you know for me as as a young kid uh you know i kind of grew up in colorado and i grew up at a time when like you know when you were punished you had to go inside and just kind of reversed <laughs> it for for some folks so um, I was just always outside and I lived in a place where there was very uh, few homes. It was just open fields and in the mountains and creeks. And I just spent my time, you know, out there with, you know, a BB gun or a slingshot. And, you know, you steal a, you know, a kitchen knife and you think you got a cool knife and you realize it doesn't cut. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of my youth um, just doing that, experimenting, reading books like Call of the Wild and Hatchet and, uh, were the Redfern Gross kind of seeing these adventure stories. And I was always completely fascinated with them and um, really just kind of wanted to take a, a, a deep dive into it. And then when I was about, it was about 13 or 14, I came across a, uh, an army FM manual that kind of laid out some specific like. 2176. Tactics. Yeah. It's, it was. It FM was, 2176. Yeah. It, that's the classic. That was, man. I got so, it sitting behind me. I got it right in another room. But yeah, that was my crazy. favorite book as a kid. My get, dad gave it to me when I was about like seven, maybe s somewhere in there. About seven. I was old enough to read, right? Um, barely. Go. I had to ask like what some words were. but And I just study every figure, figure 21A, figure 21C, yeah. and just look oh, at awesome. them and, and study it. And, I'm, and then I remember when uh, I actually I uh, field dressed my first deer. And I was like, uh, I don't know. 19 or whatever at the time you know but yeah. i looked at that book since i was a little kid i knew how to do it right and so one of my know. buddies was with me and i just went to town and started doing it right away and he's like how do you know how to do it? you never even i said man i've been studying this since i was a little kid yeah. just because i've never done it doesn't mean it's not ingrained in here it was etched exactly um but i showed that to my kid the other day and it broke my heart because he's oh, he's only man. he's four right but that's All my right. little guy but I showed him, and I was like, this was Daddy's favorite book. He looks at it for about two seconds and goes, cool, sets down, walks away. <laughs> <laughs> man, that's just the way it is, you know. They're, they're young. I think that's cool, man. It's, it's, it, it's a great book, and I, I mean, I found mine in a flea market. When I did find it, it started to give me, like, a lot of clarity into, like, oh, okay, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. And, you know, uh, most of my family is from Michigan. I was born in Michigan. And really? Yeah, I was I was born in Flint, Michigan. Uh, most of my family lives in like uh, kind of like they call it the Downriver area by mm -hmm. Trenton, Grozeal, Southgate. But mm -hmm. uh, they're all hunters. They're all fishermen. Like whether it's spear and musky, uh, you know, when it's ice fishing, mm -hmm. using some drop decoys or or hunting up in the UP, like 
we've kind of always had that. And I think when I found that book, it just gave me clarity and a lot of questions I had on how certain things worked. And, you know, I stuck with that book and just kind of continued the exploring, uh, eventually joined uh, the Marine Corps, which was really into, you know, sending me to some survival schools and uh, whether it was in Thailand or Malaysia or in the Philippines, just kind of giving these different opportunities because I was really, really into it. And then um, when I was in the Corps, uh, I got out in 2011. Uh, a couple of years before I got out, I kind of said to myself, I was like, huh, how did we how did we do it? You know, I mean, you know, being in the military, you got all the kind of equipment that you need and being a rock climber and skier and just kind of outdoorsman and hunter. I've got all these things, but how did we do it? I kind of started to do a deep dive uh, into the stone tools. And I said, all right, I think stone tools was kind of one of those defining uh, things for us, being able to craft these simple stone tools and more complex ones. That's what I need to do. So uh, all of my high cost items and tents and sleeping bags and things like that, I collected them all up, drove down. And I was in California Aww. at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was it was unfortunate, but uh, I drove down to Palm Springs, gave all that stuff away. But I was out in like the Mojave Desert area. I love the deserts, and um, I just I just started uh, flint napping. You know, um, prior to that journey into flint napping, I had a guy make me a handful of stone tools, and I used those stone tools uh, until there was nothing left. And my idea was, if I can learn how to use the tool and understand how. Uh, you know, you can shape a piece of wood or take apart an animal or whatever the case may be. Once I've used the tools, then that's going to help me in my crafting and kind of days moving forward. So once those were really next to nothing, I started crafting them and it's just been a continuous, you know, exploration in the stone tools. And that's really kind of given me, you know, a unique opportunity to kind of present these skills to the, uh, you know, to folks on social media and TV shows, because it's kind of one of those things that not a lot of people do. Some, some people do, but it's a difficult skill to kind of pick up. It takes time. It takes, I would say, if you want to get really proficient, it's going to take you several years to be able to produce, uh, you know, uh, you know, projectile points for an arrow or an atlatl or being able to make a draw knife or an axe, a polished axe or a napped axe and making drills and different ornamentation. It, it takes time to learn. And I pretty much have dedicated... Uh, most of my my pursuits and efforts uh, focused around stone to really kind of understand how we started as an earlier version of us and how we ultimately use stone all through uh, pretty much all through time. And I tell folks when you think about it, we've used stone longer than we've used you know steel. We've we've got stone tools that date back 2.7 to 3.3 million years ago, and uh, you know. Steel is wow. kind of a relatively new thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you kind of, you kind of get a different level of confidence when, you know, you can take a, a piece of chert or, you know, obsidian or Kia cook or something like that and craft an entire kit, something that can drill wood, something that can shape wood, something that can, uh, allow you to hunt and something you can, you know, cl you know, fell trees with. And it's, it's just this whole sort of, you know, experience with a stone and I've just, you know, completely fallen in love with it and kind of base a lot of my actions and efforts around using stone tools and sharing, you know, my process uh, of stone tools with folks. And people seem to really resonate with it because, you know, they, they get like, 
when everyone goes back to to school, they get that like first two weeks about, you know, Australopithecus and Homo habilis and their stone <laughs> tools. And usually my videos usually pop up on their classroom screens. They're like, Hey, I know that dude from TikTok, you know, he makes, <laughs> he makes this, he makes that, you know, we so, didn't have any of that when I was a kid, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it, it's cool, you know? And I think like, uh, in January, I'm doing a documentary with uh, a group from Canada about, you know, stone tools and like, Tomorrow I'm talking to CNN about winter survival, but like all these things have really come from my unique kind of presentation of the outdoors where the idea is to kind of walk in with nothing and be able to walk out with everything. That's that mental, spiritual, physical, emotional sort of thing. And, you know, everything we could ever need already exists. We just kind of have to go about creating it. And that's when I preach to people, creativity is your really your number one survival skill that can lead to everything and anything that you could possibly need, want, and desire. More importantly, uh, in that creative process, you can survive and surviving is really just getting by hand mm-hmm. and mouth, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but that creative process will ultimately allow you to thrive where you can start to build you know, art, you can start to build, you know, buckets and tables and chairs and the the things and amenities in life that kind of make life easier. That is kind of when you move into that thrive zone. So I try to teach folks and present things to, to individuals where let's get some of the survival down, but let's try to move into that thrive capacity. So in January, yes, there's that documentary, but I'm teaching uh, a 20 day uh, private one-on-one class with a gentleman from Ohio. And, uh, he's going to meet me out in the desert on, on my property. And, um, we're going to start at square one. I'm going to strip all of his stuff away. And we're just going to start <laughs> with a chunk of stone and really start crafting those tools. We'll spend about maybe four or five, maybe, well, maybe like a week max, uh, crafting everything that we need. And then we'll go out and we'll do a walkabout together. And the beautiful thing about uh, the place I have in the Chihuahua, it's it's in Texas. So there's all sorts of opportunities to hunt. One thing is you can hunt Audad there. It's an invasive species. Mm, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's quail, there's jackrabbits and snakes and tarantulas. So, you know, everything is, you can truly go out there and kind of live that full experience. And the property that I have has some, you know, flint napping stones. So we can literally walk in with absolutely nothing and truly walk out with everything. So um, I, I guess that's kind of my, my origin story, if you will, but yeah, stone tools are awesome. Everyone should do stone tools. That's all I'm going to say. So <laughs> like you said, you started out, um, you gave all your stuff away, which makes me yeah. think, okay, so you're still doing these trips. You're going out into nature. Uh, what do you, animal hides fire only for warmth? What I mean, making certain bedding type stuff. Is that what we're going with here? That's yeah. Yeah. I think every environment kind of dictates certain things you want to have, but um, you know, like one of my, my long walks from my earth roams was from the Salton sea in California all the way up to mammoth. And uh, it was warm. So I knew I needed certain things, but like I knew I didn't need a lot. And I think my time in the military is kind of built up this, you know, I'm very accustomed to being uncomfortable, especially when I was, you know, in the infantry. But uh, if, if I don't need to uh, cook any food or whatever I find to eat can be eaten in its natural form, well, there's no need for fire. And a fire is a great thing to have, but 
if I don't if I don't need if I don't need it to cook something or boil some water, I'm really not going to create a fire. I'm going to find something that's going to keep me warm. One thing is, I kind of play the passive solar line uh, when it comes to finding rock shelters. If if I've got it, it's facing that southern sky and it's just totally heating up. I'm like, I'm going to get some residual heat out of it. Maybe I'll collect some things up. But if it's one night of being kind of uncomfortably cold, well, I can I can learn from that. Maybe I can adapt in the next night. But if I'm moving through from point A to point B, you know, I'm I'm on the move. I'm not staying and playing. So I think a lot of people, when it comes to survival, it's most of it is self-induced. So you get, you know, myself included at, at times you'll head into the bush for, you know, a weekend or, you know, an entire month. But what I mean self-induced is you get to kind of set the parameters and pick the things that you are going to incorporate into that kind of survival venture, if you will. So somebody could say, all right, for the next week, I'm going to employ, I'm going to bring an ax, I'm going to bring a steel pot, I'm going to bring a tarp, and I'm going to bring, you know, a fixed blade knife. Well, that's that's fine and they're going to test their skills given those sort of kind of like parameters that they've put upon themselves and i think for me at times i like to go out with all right i always for most of my classes i make sure everyone has a blade a blanket and a bottle and some aspect of a burn and the burn can be tinder it can be a a single hand drill it can be a hearth board but like a piece of cord to do a bow drill those are kind of like the four hardest things to replicate in the natural environment, a good piece of cloth to keep you warm, uh, a blade of some sort, uh, a bottle or a container, whether it's a clay pot or an animal skull. I mean, I did a walkabout in Colorado where I found an old deer skull and I drank out of that thing for several days, just putting it up <laughs> underneath springs. I was like, this is perfect. I, I, I think it's, it's actually sitting like right over there. Like, it's, it's that sort of stuff. So once you kind of have those basic things, it's the rest can really be up to your exploration, you know, and I'm always, I always say it's best to be led by curiosity, especially when you're on a walkabout, because I don't mind going to a, a, a spot. I call it like a stay and play where I'm going to go to a spot. I'm going to stay there for a couple of days and I'm just going to play. I'm going to catch fish. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But I also like to explore. And the curiosity is the thing that leads me from point A to point B. So when I did my walk from the Salton Sea all the way to Mammoth, I was only led by my curiosity factor. I knew I just needed to walk north. Not a hard thing to do in the deserts, in the mountains. And, you know, sun would would break in the morning. I'm crawling out of a rock shelter and I see something in the distance. I'm like, oh, what is that? I don't know. Let's go find out. And I would just go. And like, it makes it very easy to kind of uh, build up more of your reliance and like really exercise your skills. And then come across things that you would not expect to come across. Hey, is this an opportunity to use it? or whatever this is, is, is it this type of cactus? Is it a type of chola or a shindag or something like that? And those experiences have given me the opportunity to kind of say, these are the things that I like to do. This is how I like to experience the outdoors. I like to paint a really horrible scenario for myself at times. And then I also like to kind of make it easy. It's, it's like, you know, if I bring a ferro rod into the bush, it's not because I can't do a hand drill. It's just like, you know what? Give yourself a little break these next couple of days. Bring a ferro rod, maybe bring some <laughs> tinder, and just take it easy. And maybe work on, you know, uh, you know, doing doing some other sort of skill. And I always say, like, when you think about that creative process, you guys ever spent any time in like really hard swamps? Uh, yeah, I love yeah. I, 
Yeah. I really love swamps. I, I do too. It's there's tons of food. There's tons of things to eat, which is awesome. Um, but like I had to do uh, a TV show once and I had to spend 30 days in a swamp and all they gave me was one dead hog. And I'm like, perfect. This is my perfect scenario. I don't need anything. Uh, I don't want anything. But in a swamp, the one thing they don't have is stone. So I'm like, oh, you guys are really setting me up for failure on this. <laughs> so for a guy that can craft just about anything out of stone, they removed that from me. And it was that opportunity that said, all right, how can I, you know, thrive in this environment? So trying to build a shelter, you got to get a tree that's standing upright. How would you guys fell a tree if you didn't have an axe or any sort of cutting tool climb up and mm. tip it maybe snap it Can't off a smaller one no <laughs> snap, snap off a smaller one right <laughs> yeah. so a, anything's possible but one thing that i learned in that experience was if i take a tree and let's say it's seven eight inches in diameter or let's say it's even three inches in diameter and i go maybe two feet above the ground and i pack it full of clay and I build this wall of clay and then I build a fire at the base, I can burn that tree over. Mm. And you don't need an ax, you don't need a saw. And I've got a, you know, I've already crafted a, a, a friction fire over here, but now I have another tool to burn a tree over. It's those sort of things that I just, I, I just long for in any sort of outdoor experience. What can I learn from and what things can I kind of, um, you know, adapt and overcome, but ultimately create. So in that swamp, built some phenomenal shelters just by burning trees over and then, you know, finding mushrooms and building, you know, crawfish traps and all these different things. But that's what I truly like seek out and aim to do is like, all right, <laughs> what kind of problems can I give myself? And then how can I overcome given very minimal stuff? Because, you know, you could sit there with any knife and just keep it taunting around that tree. Eventually it would come over. Why not use some fire? You know, it's yeah, it's that, it's that sort of it's that sort of thing that I like to kind of discover and explore. A little more of a passive approach for sure. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, get it going, feed it a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. it. You know, and then so you got... when, when you were um, when you were out um, sleeping, and you and you say you don't you threw away all your sleeping bags, right? Yeah. Are you are you sleeping no sleeping bag at all? Just like yeah, no yeah, blanket. It's... No blanket. Um, m most of the time, like if I, if I'm in the Rockies and uh, I'll, I'll I'll gather up huge mounds of, of of grass and leaves and I'll build this big mound, mm -hmm. called like a Sasquatch sleeping bag, and you can <laughs> crawl in there and and stay cozy, warm all night. I mean, it's a good thermal layer, um, and then even if it's windy, you can just put some light sticks on top of it. You're essentially creating a nest and. Mm -hmm. You can lay all there all night. I mean, I've I've slept in so many of those where I can tell you. I mean, God, I know it's I know it's rained and sometimes it's you know like a little bit of flurry here, but you really don't feel anything. It's just mm. it's an on the go shelter. It's it's like I, I employ this concept called towers, time, others, weather, equipment, resources, and safety when I'm building uh, any sort of shelter. So. How much time do I have? Who's with me? What are the weather I'm dealing with? What equipment do I have? What resources do I have? Um, and then what are my safety factors? But if I'm moving through an area and I know the lights are coming out in the next 45 minutes, I'm not going to sit there and build this elaborate shelter like you see a lot of folks doing, which is which is totally fine. I'm going to gather up everything and anything that I can. I know the night might be absolutely horrible. I'll probably get some sleep. But I'm just going to crawl in there and go to bed. I find a rock shelter. 
hey, let's let's throw some pine boughs in there, some grass, some aspen leaves. It's facing in the right direction. The, the wind isn't hitting it. I'll get the morning sun. The rock looks nice and solid. It doesn't look rotten. I'm crawling in for the night and I'm going to mm. make it happen. And then there's other times where I bring like, you know, a patoo or one of my jump cloths and wrap that around the waist and that's enough. Or maybe Finn's with me, my dog. And I'm like, get in here, buddy. We're <laughs> buddy today. And we, just, we snuggle up all night. You know, it's, it's case by case. But when I said earlier, it's, you know, survival is those experiences are kind of like self-induced, but you get to kind of pick what you want. So yeah. I know right now it's, you know, when Christmas rolls around in another two weeks, I'll be like Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. I'll be out in the mountains. Um, I'll be kind of doing my own thing. My boys will be with their mom. But for me at that time, you know, and I'm like, all right, it's Christmas. Uh, it's, you know, extremely cold here, probably be, you know, well below freezing. And I'm going to bring my dogs with me. I'm more worried about them at that point. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll bring like my big bison hide and we can all snuggle up underneath it. And like mm -hmm. a little bit of dog chow for them. I'll bring a bow and uh, we'll just go shoot some small. I like small game hunting. I think it's I think it's super fun. And you can, you know, shoot. I'm with shoot you. Yeah, shoot a rabbit, shoot a squirrel. It's like <laughs> a good meal. I kind of mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, I mean, that's what I'll go do. But I'll be able to pick it. And if I feel like... I'm going too easy on myself and like routinely, then I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell my boys, I'm like, Hey, this is what I'm bringing out with me. They're like, why are you bringing that? I'm like, you're right. I shouldn't bring, I should definitely not bring an extra <laughs> knife or a saw. Like dad, you're really bringing a saw. I'm like, yeah, well, I just thought maybe we cut fire. No, we're not bringing this. I'm like, okay, we won't bring the saw, you know, but it's, <laughs> you kind of get to pick what you want and yeah, it's, it's really the adventure, you know? No, it's pretty cool. Yep. Now I feel like it was for sure sleeping in the back of my truck. <laughs> on a platform <laughs> I made, you know, uh, oh, man, next time good. deer camp, I'm just going to be laying in a pile of leaves and just wake up and maybe stab a deer with a spear or something. You know? uh, <laughs> I, I do recommend people, if you are going elk hunting or deer hunting, you should always sleep in a pile of leaves and grass and dirt. Cover if you want like, an, <laughs> if you want an organic smell on you, one sleep in that stuff, right? Like you can sleep on top of your clothes or you can even sleep in your clothes, but wrap yourself in like the smells of the earth and then find anything that has been charred naturally in the environment because a burnt tree is a very natural smell for animals fires happen and then cover yourself with that wood char even like break a piece off and stick it in your your pocket you'll have no issues sneaking up on sun playing the wind right um it's i do i do it all the time like i don't i don't cover myself in urine or anything and there's nothing wrong <laughs> if that's your thing i mean but <laughs> for for me that's not my my jam it was kind of hard explaining to my my girlfriend i'm like look so this is how we're gonna have to hunt out she's like okay i'm like no no we're gonna have to sleep in piles of leaves cover ourselves in wood char and we're gonna go get some elk she's like okay we'll do it you know she's she's pretty hardcore she's 100 pounds soaking wet and i've dragged her all through the mountains in february when it's just freezing cold and through the deserts of utah and these canyons and uh, but she's she's very much a forager she knows a lot of medicinal plants i came back from the amazon with a parasite and she cured that in three days with a concoction of this that and the other and so we got a good little crew out here <laughs> wow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it works um, out. so you do you hunt elk like every year uh, case by case. It, it, it depends on, uh, really what I need. Uh, I'm not much of a trophy hunter. 
It's mm-hmm. all about uh, meat in the fridge. And if I've got enough feet that I uh, meat that I know will last me um, for a good chunk of change into uh, the winter. Um, yeah, I won't, I won't put in for tags. Mm-hmm. I, I usually, you know, I've done a couple of bison and a bison will yield plenty of hundreds of pounds of meat. I'm a big roadkill guy. Um, and then also I hunt invasives in, in different states specifically go down to Texas and I'll take a couple hogs there and I'll process that out. But I mean, if I, if, if I've been eating hog and roadkill for a while and I want to go for an elk, I'll, I'll put in for a tag. But mm-hmm. I think this, this past year I didn't cause I had a bison, but in the years past I've, I've put in for, um, you know, an elk tag or mule deer tag or a pronghorn tag or bear. And, you know, I, I enjoyed the hunt to hunt but I enjoy the hunt even more when I know I like really need it. Like mm-hmm. I need the, I need the meat. I want that hide for something or that's kind of my, my focus of, uh, you know, hunting and where I kind of live, there's a good little community of, of hunters and we all share, you know, what we, what we have, what we've taken, you know, I think my biggest asset in the community is I can quickly butcher things. So, like, you know, I can take apart an animal and next thing you know, like my neighbor, he, he's older. He goes to Missouri. He shoots, you know, four or five deer or however many tags that he's got. And he'll come back and be like, can you help me? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> we just set up a little, our own little meat camp and uh, we, we get it done. I also, I also like waterfowl uh, hunting. I like, I like ducks. I like geese and, you know, you put four or five, you know, ducks in your freezer, fully dressed, right. And just looking good and geese, we eat the crap. And a lot of people like to eat geese. I don't know why I find it delicious. Um, it depends. It depends on what yeah. I'm in the mood for. Like, I don't rarely do I ever want to just take like a goose breast and sear it in the pan, like a duck breast to me. Yeah, I just different. don't like that. You know what I mean? Uh, it seems yeah. like most of them are too tough, but if you throw it in the crock pot and throw a little bit of yeah. stuff in there, I mean, that's good. Yeah, you can make some yeah. good Italian I, beef or whatever, you know. I mean, that's what yeah, it tastes like. Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of like goose tacos. I'll like, I'll like cook it for a short period of time and just like slice it in these like lo- kind of like long strips or like small chunks. Add taco seasoning to it and just oh, yeah. eat, eat that up. That's pretty good. I I like goose. Um, I think you're right though. Like you can sear it in a pan maybe once or twice, and then you're like, all right, that's enough of this. You know. <laughs> swamp bat you know it's yeah. just, you can you can taste every bit of algae and that it's ever consumed you're like oh my god but the, the one reason why i like to hunt geese is as soon as i you know shoot a goose it's awesome uh there's meat in the fridge but more importantly i like to rip those wings off and i keep the feathers on those wings so i can use them for fletchings for arrows mm. and it's 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 real easy to maintain all of the correct wings on one arrow. So I know if this is the right wing, every, you know, feather that's on there is perfect for my fletching. So like for me, a lot of hunting is the resources that it provides from the food to the, to the hides, to, you know, wings, to the intestines for bowstrings, rendering the fats, leg bones for various tools. Um, more importantly, I mean, I've got, you might be able to kind of see it right over there, but I got this huge, rack from from an elk and like as much as it would break my heart i would cut that thing open cut it up into pieces when i run out of like my flint napping tools it's gone you know what i mean (laughs) i mean i've got you know deer and just about everything but some of them i'm like well i need i need new tools i need this i need this for the year and all right gotta put in tags but uh 
you know, I, I'm also a roadkill fan. I eat the <laughs> shit out of some roadkill. Because, <laughs> I mean, Colorado, it gets cold. Something gets hit in the middle of the night. It just kind of freezes real quick. And I just pull it off the side of the road. And, yeah, boys, meet me, <laughs> meet me in the garage. You know, yeah. like, what did you get? I'm like, uh, you half of the deer and they're like well, where's the other half wolf. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well not yet but soon right <laughs> wolves yeah. yeah 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 the wolves are coming back around here i think the populations are are uh gonna slowly increase but i think you guys you guys are gonna have grizzlies before sooner than you think uh or yeah. at least they I, think uh i've got a buddy that hunts and he said he was all the way out in the breaks and they were seeing grizzlies out there so in montana so i mean they're making their way yeah they're, they're making they their way out and down. Uh, one of the things I got to ask you, though, uh, yeah. you talked about the bison and how you hunted the bison. I've been putting in for a tag for a while now. Uh, pretty sure this year, um, going a different route, but uh, probably draw one. Um, what did you hunt it with? Was it atlatl? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the bison the, that I've done in the past have been tied to, like, archaeological experiments with the university. So we actually go to like uh, a couple of them and put down by the the rancher and we've just thrown darts into them. Um, so it, it, it just depends on exactly kind of what that process is. But like if the opportunity to do some research into hunting, you know, a size of megafauna with an atlatl, if that's feasible, then that's kind of the route we go. And whether um, and then I just put like this June, I'm doing a stone tools bison butchering class. So everyone that shows up, eight or nine people will show up. Everyone brings a couple coolers. We'll spend one day crafting all the stone tools and then uh, we'll butcher in the bison. But uh, the, the bisons I've done the past, I just, I know a rancher and you can't really hunt bison in North America anymore. I mean, you, you can legally hunt it, but you're not really hunting bison. There's so many of them are so closely domesticated and most of the ones you might see online of people hunting, they're usually tranquilized or they're old old cows that have, you know, they've given 20 or 30 different calves. I mean, and th this is, this is me just speaking to a couple different ranchers about they're like, you can go out and, and hunt one, but it's not like, it's a day hunt. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not what you think, you know what I mean? So you're not stalking um, the Ember prairies for, uh, exactly, you know, for exactly. seven days after a giant herd chasing exactly. them into a snowstorm or something, but yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's but a day kinda, hunt. But. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of given up on the, the hunting of the bison and more into, um, using it for an archeological experiment, testing stone points, and then butchering it out and then getting the meat. And, and that just comes with relationship with different, you know, ranches and, um, you know, folks that kind of deal in the bison community, if you will. I, I like hunting in Colorado. Colorado's got some, some great places to hunt. Um, can get a little populated at times, especially once that archery season's over, everyone kind of has their, their favorites. And I um, only hunt archery uh, for, for elk, but I do like going down to Texas and hunting some, you know, hogs and you know, oh, yeah. you're sitting up in a tree or you're on foot or I, I enjoy that uh, hunting all dad, you know, mule deer, you, you name it. I mean, again, it really comes down uh, resources for me and the food, the fur, the feathers. If I need it, um, I'm going to go for it and, you know, put in the tags. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, man, for sure. Well, Donnie, um, do you have anything uh, extra special that you would love to talk about before we wrap this bad boy up? You know, um, 
I think, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you guys letting me kind of run my mouth about uh, Africa. You're the first first folks I've talked to, any, you know, uh, to about my my Africa trip. So, um, no, man, I just uh, I hope those that are listening, you know, please check out that uh, that podcast. I think uh, I think it will resonate, you know, pretty well with a lot of folks. And uh, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and chat with you guys and let me run my mouth for <laughs> a chunk of change. So, yeah, thanks. I appreciate no, I mean, uh, we, we really appreciate it. I mean, um, like I said, I've been following you for, you for years. I'm uh, fascinated by your story. I actually um, meant to ask you, uh, maybe if you have another minute here, I will, I will actually yeah. extend this. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just, I, I just, I just remembered this question. Cause you know, like when me and Luke are sitting here, we're like co-hosts and yeah. we're like trying to coordinate, like who's going to ask which question, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. So, sometimes that can be tough and I forgot, but um, you were on alone. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I, and, uh, I mean, many people have seen that, but this is, this doesn't pertain to you, but like, I'm always wondering why does it seem like so many people on that show, like are time wasters, or is that just the perception? Cause like, I'll, I'll be like, what is going on? Like, how does that person like spend, you know, all their time and then they nothing to show for it? Yeah. 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 I think, I think the, the one thing I've learned uh, in, in doing a couple different TV shows, one, one to be alone and, you know, a, a couple others is they, they try to tell a story in all of the footage, right? So you could get somebody that's really active and then the 15 minutes they decide to sit down and take a break. They want to focus on that because it might build into the story of them not getting food two or three days later. Mm. Um they you you could show somebody who is really into you know carving spoons or wanting to carve something for their family back home um and it might only be a 30 minute filming where he's going to sit and carve these things and that's not maybe his entire day has been hunting and, and cutting wood but that 30 minutes he just wants to take a break and reflect on his family they could potentially spin that into a narrative of he really he's misses his yeah. family he's homesick yeah. and it builds into that drama a little bit yep. so i like to say in a, in a show like alone everything you 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 see is and has actually happened but there's a lot of amazing editors that take that footage <laughs> yeah. and they, they, they spin it into, um, you know, episodic sort of stories and then kind of long-term uh, stories. So, I mean, you could talk to anybody that's been on alone and they might say, well, you know, I did a lot of this, but it was never shown, or I did this one time and that seemed to be like the major thing. Um, so, you know, I would say take it with a grain of salt, but alone's a great show. Um, it's uh it's definitely real and i think when people watch it know there's like so much more going on and <laughs> sometimes they capitalize on those moments of vulnerability because it's a great way for an audience to you know actually connect with that participant as well as it might help tell a story that they've kind of mapped out based on all of your footage mm. so well, that's it's kind of a weird yeah it's kind of a weird beast but you know, it's, it's like forged in fire. How do you make so much drama out of just yeah. uh, a hammer and an anvil? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. I love that. I love forged in fire. Like, I'll watch if it's like a Friday night and like my kids are here and it's snowing. I'm like, yes, forged in fire. Like, <laughs> and I've watched, I've watched every, every season, but it's 
it's awesome because like I think it was like two years ago, I was like, all right, this is the year you learn how to work steel. So I just I found a local forge and I just I don't want to be a steel worker. It's like every year I try and pick like kind of one outline kind of skill, like whether it's making, um, you know, mead and beer, it's 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 keeping bees or it's uh, working steel. It's just this new skill I kind of focus on for that year. And that year it was, uh, you know, making knives and stuff. And I felt like I was able to make blades. I was able to make spears and different things. I was like, sold let's put the steel away and let's go back to the sun i'm always working yeah. stone but you know forged in fire how do they make it drama filled by setting rules and setting parameters and you've got three hours to do this yeah. you have to use these scales and i always wonder why like i'm like have these contestants ever not watched forged in fire like i know <laughs> as soon as i'm going to curveball do some, <laughs> yeah i'm like just use the damn whiteout use the whiteout like some people don't use it when they're like trying to i'm not sure what the welding technique is but i'm like i've watched this has nobody else watched this like use the goddamn whiteout so you can get the scales off of the 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 thing when they're trying to i don't even know what it is I'll, i sound like you're talking now, about when you're flex welding Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, that. Yeah. I'm like, just use the whiteout. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, he's totally not going to be able to pry that off, you know. <laughs> I'm, I, you know I'm a, I'm a quarterback coach when it comes to yeah. Know, making Everybody's knives. an armchair quarterback until it comes time yeah. to do it. But uh, exactly, you know. And I humbly admit it. <laughs> yeah, you probably so loved it more than most. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> when you make a when you make a uh, stone tool, do you then say it will cut? <laughs> i mean like i make things like this size big old oh. pieces and blades wow. I my house is littered with stone tools like it is littered left and right with i mean various knives that just kind of hang out all over the place like my back wall is just so full of stuff are you importing going out and collecting where are you getting uh the stone materials from i mean are you going to like napping meetups and buying truckloads or what What are you doing no i i've never been to a napping i try to avoid a lot of like social things like that <laughs> i get it i'm not like a by any means, but you know i'm like uh maybe i i need to go to one eventually but uh, i'd say i collect about 80 percent of the stone that i nap um, I trade uh, probably about another 10 to 15%. And then the remainder, if I'm looking for something kind of unique or somebody's requested a, a custom knife or a custom build or something for a university or a museum and I need specific stone, I just, I just, you know, go one of the sites and buy that, that chunk of stone. But I think, I think just like, you know, in hunting, you got to put in your work. So I have no issues driving to Utah or Arizona or, you know, Arkansas or Texas uh, to collect stone. I have a little black book with all of my secret, I call them my secret stone locations. Some of them are not secret by any means, but they're my, <laughs> all my stone locations spread throughout the U S and I, and I personally believe the day I die, it's going to be like the, one of the most like, you know, sought after like <laughs> items. This is this is just the narrative I tell myself in my head. I'm like, you're gonna be like Picasso. You're somebody's gonna, gonna inherit the black book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody's gonna get the black book of the secret stone locations. And um, you know what you should do? Make a complex series of treasure hunts. That one go. treasure leads to another treasure until it leads to the book of secrets. 
I would. Donnie tells secrets. <laughs> That's what I mean. I think I think there might be maybe like seven to nine people that would actually be interested in that treasure hunt for stone, <laughs> but it would be an awesome adventure. That's <laughs> that's my thing. Yeah, so I I try to collect a lot of it because I feel like you gotta kind of put the work in, if you will, and you can be a little bit more choosy where you go. And yeah, no, that's awesome. Open. So um, one thing we didn't cover really was just the fact that like. Did you completely teach yourself how to nap? Did you buy a book? Did you watch a DVD? Uh, what what yeah. did you do on that? Yeah, so it really came down to me uh, teaching myself through the help of a, a couple books. Um, I prior to this, I, I you know I was never on social media, so I stayed off of YouTube. I didn't really really have you and this what YouTube was like two thousand nine. This was before then, um, so it really wasn't an option. So. I just, I kind of picked it up in books and there's a guy by the name of John Whitaker, who I know who's a phenomenal archaeologist. He's written a couple books and um, I read a couple of his on just flint napping processes and I was able to pick up some there, but it really came down to like just having a shit ton of stone, part of my French and just napping, <laughs> just learning and, and making huge errors and giving myself stitches and just constantly <laughs> bleeding but then after a while, like pain is compliance, you kind of learn how not to, you know, almost sever your thumb or, you know, slice open your leg from a piece of obsidian. But yeah, I pretty much taught myself and um, yeah, it's, it was a lot. Did you, <laughs> was, uh, did, did you ever take like bottoms of wine bottles and stuff like that to use to practice on the glass or? No, I, 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 I know that's a great medium to start with beer bottles or John stone, which is like an old broken toilet or even tile. John um, stone. <laughs> yeah. John stone. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to do that. Like when I, when I started napping, I was, I was like a purist in forms and I still am in many ways where, I was like, you need to go out and find the stone. That's part of that flint napping story is like, man just didn't exist around the stone. He had to travel to it. So it was, it was all part of that experience. How did we do this? How did we figure it out? It was through flint napping. Well, this is one of those things that I had to learn and start to really kind of understand like different, different geological forms and uh, different, you know, U.S. baits based, uh, you know, plates and how they've interacted and ancient oceans and, uh, which was awesome because it kind of gave me a whole different level of knowledge into understanding geology. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I just like, you know, napping rock. I mean, I have experimented with glass and stuff, but later, you know, you find a piece of glass in the bush. You're like, all right, let's see what we can make, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always been rock and I'm a traditional napper or, or you know, primitive napper or whatever they, they want to call it where I don't use, like copper uh, a lot of mm. most nappers use copper boppers and copper flakers um that's just what they use it's a soft metal it kind of works very similar but i'm traditional in the form where i only use like pieces of you know stone bones, and hammer stones yeah. and yeah bones and antlers and that's just i think that's the other reason why you know uh people are kind of gravitate towards that more that traditional you know, style. Cause I'm like everything I'm doing here, you can literally resource in the natural yeah. environment. Like we've all found sheds and I'm like, every shed is a potential, you know, soft hammer as well as a pressure flaker and, you know, picking up river cobbles as hammer stones. I mean, like you can do that anywhere. Like if I have to go get like 
you know, school lunches for my kids and I got to go to a grocery store. I go to the grocery store that has the beautiful Riverstone cobbles in the parking lot. And I just walk through <laughs> and pick up, pick up hammer <laughs> you know, It's just, you know, my kids for Christmas, they get me rocks. I'm like, I'm the easiest man to shop for. It's either a hammerstone or some sort of flint napping stone. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, keep it simple. Yeah. Keep it real simple. That's the one thing I want to still get into is uh, napping. That's a, uh... I feel like it's the next evolution in in my hunting process. I actually yeah, went from from you know modern at the time to primitive, and then I did my own arrows, cut my own fletchings, burned my own Hell fletchings yeah. in own shape, stuff like that. You know, Orford cedar shafts. Take my pencil, yeah. my pencil shaver, and shave you know the, yeah, the tips, man. and, and yeah. uh, did all that stuff. Made my own pitch, you know, glue and. I mean, what's the next step, man? It, it's obviously making Stone Point, but now I mean, I'm back on the the modern equipment. But I still have yeah. a soft spot in my heart for doing the primitive stuff. It's just something about you should. it. You should keep exploring it. I, I think if I could give one bit of advice, and I give this to most people that are napping, I'm like, don't focus on making spearheads and dart points and beautiful arrowheads right up front. Just make tools. Make simple tools. And then you use those tools. So pop off some beautiful discoidal flakes. And the next time you're getting into a deer, use those flakes. And then through the resharpening of those flakes, you kind of understand pressure flaking a little bit more. And, hey, you know what? I want to pop off a bigger flake that has a, uh, you know, a, a better proximal end that I can really hold on to. So focus on the tools. Make some simple tools. Use those tools. And then literally for one year, just make arrowheads. Don't worry about clo- clovis points or big bifaces just make arrowheads because once you can really craft and you can pop off a flake through a nice clean hit you've got a good flake and you're just like all right now i'm going to make an arrowhead and don't worry about creating historical pieces from the past just make an arrowhead something that you're like would this kill absolutely then make another one and make another i've got a a, a, a shoebox just full of arrowheads that functional. I just yeah yeah they're 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 functional they're pointy and they haft that's it yeah i mean you look at some of the ancient cultures like the mount albion culture they used a horrible quartz and basically they're pointy will this draw blood if i stick this into the side of the animal and that animal starts to run will it continue to cut and lacerate absolutely hey man you're you're in the money <laughs> more nice. more more yeah i mean more importantly i'm like if it's not the sharpest do a gut shot that old mentality oh you shouldn't do a gut shot whatever man i've shot many a hog straight through the gut because it's soft i'm not shooting through the shield right the hard layer of fat i'll stick an arrow or a dart right into that side of that gut it takes off and that dart or that arrow hits something and just rips that thing right open and then 10 15 more feet it's laying on the ground yeah wow I mean, do you spear a lot of hogs um a, ha- a handful a handful of of hogs that's really the i mean well fish i mean that's not really like spear fishing and ice fishing but i want to uh, spear most- big game i mean spirit hogs but man i want to go after like bears and <laughs> like tim wells tim wells yeah. is a big spear guy Those lock mass you know he doesn't live that far from me he, oh no kidding yeah yeah he's 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 quite uh he's got a good following because of his kind of unique spearing videos and stuff i i actually from africa brought back uh the maasai spear uh that i made so i'm planning on probably eh, maybe like february or into march going to my buddy's property in texas and being like all right man i'm gonna be around this guy for the next couple of days i'm gonna be wearing a loincloth and i'm gonna be holding the spear but i'm safe you know <laughs> yeah and i'm just gonna 
just going to go after all the hogs on his property. And he's like, yeah, man, go for it. Do your thing. Yeah. All right. Texas. <laughs> yeah. I actually used Tim Spear on a hog in Texas. Oh, right on. Uh, right well, on. It was what, February, right? That was March last year. Or March. March. Mar- this year. It was this year. Oh, yeah, this yeah, year. It was this, this year. year. March of this year. <laughs> right yeah. yeah. It was pretty cool. <laughs> Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. That's the way to yeah. do it. Did you, did you eat the hog? Oh, yeah. Eat them up? Oh, yeah. I made yeah. Uh, breakfast sausage out of them. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, took the, the loins and turned it into Canadian bacon. And it was Hell yeah. fantastic. Good, man. Yeah. I get so mad when people dump their wild hogs. I'm like, what are you doing, man? That's like, that's good to eat. And I know sometimes they can get a little nasty and whatnot but i'm like man if there's a big sow and she's got a bunch of little ones i'm plugging those little ones because that's like hunting <laughs> footballs yeah that's what i mean sure. it's, a, it's a it's a quick gut and onto the rotisserie they're so tender oh, and yeah. juicy and, yeah man, mm-hmm. I, that's that's the way to do it man well if you guys ever want to do a hog hunt count me in man i'm always there heck yeah <laughs> yeah we uh we we just went to where was that uh northern texas that was in march okay. and um yeah my, i brought my son down there and um yeah. he got he shot his first uh yeah big game there and then nice. um and that was with luke and and there was a couple other people it was it was pretty fun um nice. i i actually really want to uh and it's like opposite from what you guys are talking about i would love to go to texas and actually just uh shoot them with guns this was uh this is a random i don't have a desire a... to use guns anymore once <laughs> yeah, once you get I... a spear kill that's all you want to do <laughs> i'm just telling you Clay. It's like... <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm not good so this is where i do need to practice like i'm not good at archery at all yeah and um and in fact the house that i just bought last june you know um my neighbor told me basically said like in a threatening way hey i see that target you have in your backyard that's not allowed in city limits you know you can't practice <laughs> archery oh god and, uh, and i was like ah you know oh like, man <laughs> and um <laughs> and sucks. so and so like now i can't um practice in my own backyard and um so yeah everything we do you know mostly the hunting that i do is all either with my what i jokingly refer to as my french war bow which, which is my my my, cro- my crossbow <laughs> my <laughs> french war bow awesome. it well, sounds a little better sense. than crossbow you know <laughs> yeah. oh, man. that's cool that's cool um, yeah, or that, or my, or we we do a lot of small game in this house, and we use twenty yeah. twos. You know, yeah, that's yeah. the way to do it, man. Yeah, hey, so. I I think there's nothing wrong with hunting with a rifle, hunting with a bow, uh, a French war bow. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you know, here's you the question, Clay: Have you ever used like a, a longbow or even like a recurve? and hunted small game some of the most fun i've had is yeah. shooting squirrels with like little judo points in 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 trees yeah. and then like yeah, at I, the same time chasing rabbits and as they're just bounding and zigzagging trying to just real quick snap back and shoot them that that fun. to me is super fun but but yeah. you get a rifle in my hand i'm like nah let's go I, I just want to grab my bow and kill a deer you know what i mean like, <laughs> There it is. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually used to hunt uh, squirrels with a recurve, and um, I shot a few of them. But actually, and then you got hungry. I, I, <laughs> I, I have probably I have probably one up to you guys though. I have shot many squirrels with a blowgun. 
Oh, so that's cool. Yeah. I have, I have. I've got a blowgun over here, and then I, I got one of Tim Wells's blowguns because I get tons of rabbits, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I need to be quiet when I shoot these things because I was like, and I could jump out, you know, a front door with a bow, but like at a certain point, like, just stick that muzzle and just. Oh, Tim, Tim's you know? blowgun's big too. It's like a, like a forty or fifty caliber size blowgun, isn't it? It's yeah, a- I think it. I think it's 451 or something like yeah, that. Or, it's big. Yeah, it's yeah, it's I, I like the I fishing mean, apparatus he's got for it. <laughs> he's got a, he's got a ton of stuff. I, I'm impressed <laughs> with it, but I think a blowgun, I think I might try that. I made one out of like cane. You can kind of see it over here with some like official like you know cane uh points and stuff. And I've been blowing that around, you know. I, I think I've taken like two squirrels with it. But one squirrel was like, I pretty much knocked it out of the tree and then my dog ate it. So I count that as like <laughs> second one. But like, I was like, all right, you know, just go get the fun one. Because the fun one is like, I'm like, if there's a mouse in the house, I'll let that mouse just slowly just, you know, oh, yeah. he's getting safe and then just just pin him to the wall. <laughs> that sounds like a good, that sounds like a good point. Yeah. Man, we're all, we're all children at heart. Oh, <laughs> that's, hey, man. that's what it is. It's all good. <laughs> yeah well so before we uh get going where can people find you and find all your awesome content classes all that kind of stuff yeah yeah right on so uh anyone that's interested in classes i don't offer any calendar classes where you know i say hey this class is being you know offered on this day everything is a custom build based on the person and uh, most of the time they are one-on-one classes or a small group. And I mean, small group in the form of like, you know, college roommates or a husband and wife or, you know, that kind of dynamic. I like to keep it small and intimate, but uh, all you got to do is you can go to Paleo Track Survival. I've got a contact page on there. You send me a message. We'll set up a uh, kind of a phone call, kind of discuss what you're wanting to do because that's what it's about. It's about addressing your your needs. But yeah, PaleoTrackSurvival.com. Um, as far as, you know, any of the books that, you know, I've written or, you know, you kind of want to stay abreast on what shows and podcasts are going on, you can go to DonnieDust.com. I kind of keep that like updated and pretty much all the social media stuff is really just, you know, Donnie Dust, um, and then, uh, Donnie Dust Paleo Tracks for YouTube and you can Google my name and something's going to pop up <laughs> in, some, in some way, shape or form, like, has Donnie Dust ever been arrested? What does Donnie Dust do for a living? It's, you know, there's so many people ask weird questions and I just, hey man, I'm happy to answer them. But yeah, uh, I think, uh, and then for, as far as the podcast, pretty much anywhere, I think it's, I think it's on all the, the podcasting platforms like Spotify and the ones you have on your phone and mm-hmm. Google play and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, check it out. It's a good, it's a good time. And yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on here. Let me run my mouth and share some stories. It's been fun chatting. We'll have to do it again sometime. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. It's been fun. Right on, dudes. Right on. Yeah, well, talk to you next time, Donnie. All right, brothers. Appreciate your time. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.